Create an Unstoppable Life, episode 187. Create an Unstoppable Life is all about mindset for the high achiever to help you build a life of fulfillment and freedom. I'm your host, Dina George, MD, a mindset and marketing coach and a family medicine physician. It's an honor to spend time with you today. I am so, so excited to introduce you to my dear friend, Dr. Jillian Rigert. She came into our lives probably a year and a half ago, and she is truly an amazing soul. Her depth of awareness, her depth of compassion, her depth of really showing others how much she cares and how much she understands is absolutely incredible. She is a physician. She is trained in dentistry. She does all kinds of things. Uh, But to me, she's just an amazing human. So that's how I'd introduce you. How would you like to introduce you? (laughs) Well, Dina, I value your friendship and I feel like we're known each other for a long time. As we've just discovered, we're pretty much twins born in the same month, almost the same day. I really appreciate the honor of being together. I know people won't hear this on your birthday, but I get the grand opportunity to be celebrating your life on your birthday here on this podcast today. How would I introduce myself? Uh, Mostly a dog mom. The value of my life has been reconnecting with what matters and in what you communicated and what we hope to bring to people today is I try to bring a mission to help people to obtain what they may have been lacking through most of their life. So the things that you mentioned are the things that I found I was lacking in most of my life and in discovering what really gives us a sense of purpose and joy in our life. Uh, I'm trying to spread the messages so that others can do the same and really lean into the lives that they want to create. One of our mentors, Dr. Mariano says, may my pain be someone else's gain And that's how I look at at what we're embarking on today is that really looking at our lives, looking at our experiences in the past and our experience now and offering that to others for, for two simple reasons. One is to share something in the book that may not have been noticed. And the other is, is to say, you're not alone. You're not alone in the experiences you've had. You're, You're not alone in how you felt. You're not alone. If you've been kicked in the gut and dragged through the mud, um, we get it. And we're there too. And you are worthy and you belong. And that's the intention behind this book is to look at what we can do, what we can give ourselves, not waiting for the world to change, but what can we do to lift ourselves up, boost ourselves up, give ourselves a big hug, because there are times in real human life that don't feel hug worthy. Absolutely. And I think it's important, you know, when I was rereading, so we're reading the fierce self-compassion and there was an aspect of the book that people, you know, uh, as they're leaning in to discussions on self-compassion might have resistance. And so Kristen Neff talks about relationships with self-compassion as either coming naturally, being difficult, or even being scary. And I really resonated with the scary because as you lean into these discussions, a lot comes up. We might envision times where we weren't so self-compassionate, times where self-criticism was a protective mechanism from lack of safety in our environments. 
And so I share that so that if people are feeling like, oh, there's something about self-compassion that's really stirring a lot up, now is the time to lean into that supportive community, maybe some professional help, um, because I think it's worth leaning into that in order to really create that life that is grounded in self-compassion, because that has been the 180 for me. How about for you? Yeah, for sure. And it reminds me that one of the quotes, and I've read it about five times, it's either in the intro or chapter one, what we're covering today is you can't heal what you don't feel. I was like, oh my gosh, there are so many things in my life that I have packaged up and put away in the closet all the way in the back where you can't see it, expecting that miraculously, it's just going to be cleaned up. And it turns out that doesn't happen. (laughs) Yeah. And even when we're going through training, for example, medical training, or if you're in a state of trauma, whatever it looks like, and you're in survival mode and you dissociate, uh, I know for me, reflecting back on this year compared to any other year in my adult life, I was not able to access my feelings. And Brene Brown talks a lot about putting up that armor that protects you from the pain, but also protects you from the love. I was like, I could not feel love. Uh, I felt pain, but I didn't, I just felt very limited spectrum of emotions. And now I understand, oh yeah, I was in survival mode. And if we want to feel love and joy, we have to open up our vulnerability, experience the pain and process through it and never feel that you have to do that alone. I think it's too hard. For sure. And medicine, boy, it's different now what I see in training, but when I was in training, there was not encouragement to feel your feelings and take time and process it and resources to help you on the spot. So I remember a long-term patient that I had in clinic when I was a resident, I left for three years, came back and she became my patient again. Only this time when she, she was my patient, she had unintentional weight loss, a lot of fatigue, and it turned out she had uterine cancer and it was malignant metastatic uterine cancer. So she was on my, on my clinic schedule one day. She didn't want to see anyone else. She waited until the first available appointment. And I think she must've known what was happening, but I thought I have 15 minutes to see her. And I, I like, my soul is crushing just seeing her walk through the door and looking at what has changed in only three years. And then I've got a full schedule after that. So it's like, there's no time to feel or process. There's what does she need right now? And how can I help her? And the rest just has to wait. And that is a really tough way to live. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was a third year medical student and this woman came in for what she thought was gallbladder pain, turned out to be pancreatic cancer. And she was often alone in a room Her her husband worked and her kids were older and went to school. And as a third year medical student, I knew the most valuable place I could be was sitting by her. I said very little. I didn't want to overstep any comments within their medical treatment. But I know from my own serious illness where I had an illness where people looked at me, thought I might not make it, but didn't know what to say. So they left. But a couple of people knew what I needed. So those were the people that stepped into my life that may not have known me before and they held space. And I was like, wow, the pain of loneliness is so severe, but yet a person just coming in and holding space can alleviate 
that suffering. So I offered that to this patient and my criticism when we got evaluated on our rotations was that I spent too much time with the patient. And I said, I do that again. And now I've realized that's my purpose. Like that is where I need to be and to lean in to the people who you're like, I don't know how to fix this, but I know how to be next to you. I know how to walk with you. And I think holding space is something that humans are craving and not really know what they're seeking and and what they need. Right. Because loneliness reinforces any negative thought that I have. I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not, I could go on and on with all of these things. That's what loneliness will reinforce, but having somebody sitting there just saying, I'm here, I'm here. You're not alone. I'm here. This is a big deal. I'm here. We don't have answers, but I'm here. And, and that's what you deserve. You deserve someone to be here. Yeah. You hit it spot on too. Uh, because when I was in surgical training and thought I was the only one that couldn't cut it, that just increased my self, my negative self-talk and ultimately spiraled me from the self-doubt. And everyone has self-doubt. It's common, especially if we're in a place of growth. But my self-doubt spiraled into self-sabotage because I ruminated. It's just me. Why am I so broken? Why can't I cut it? And everyone else around me looks fine. And that's that's even in the book. So I can't remember if it's the intro or chapter one. It, one of the things that we do is we look around and we say, everyone looks fine. Nobody's having a problem. I shouldn't be having a problem. Yeah. And there are very few people that are saying, this stuff is tough. This is hard. Learning surgical skills is difficult. Functioning on three or four hours of sleep a night is inhumane. Of course, it's going to take time. Yeah. And you know what? When we're in that environment and we're taught that we have to break ourselves down to build ourselves up, I often relay uh, to the, I go back to the quote from Brene Brown that said, at the core of mental toughness is self compassion. And here we're talking specifically about self-compassion, but Kristen Neff talks about the difference between the nurturing, tender self-compassion and the fierce self-compassion. Would you like to go into the difference between the two? Yeah, I I really enjoyed it because one term does not fit everything. Uh, So that's what I appreciate is that she broke them down into... Like there's different forms of self-compassion, almost like expanding my vocabulary and expanding my my awareness. And again, that's just in these first two sections. Like I feel like I have new things to think about and new things to share as well. What I took away on the the tender self-compassion is that it's nurturing. So that's the nurturing aspect. That's the quiet, more still. Uh, and the the fear self-compassion, she talks about taking action. So taking action to alleviate suffering versus being quiet, being still, being self-nurturing, that form of self-compassion. How about you? Yeah, that's what I'm picturing because we go back and we, a good friend of ours, Dr. Kara Pepper talks about that fierce mama bear self-compassion. I see her doing it. She's got a podcast. It's not just you. 
And, and what I really noticed is she's taking what she experienced and really helping to be the voice and, and bring people who can bring the voice that comes across as strong, fierce, empowered. Because yes, we need nurturing to heal, but we can't just keep healing. We need to learn to take action, to advocate for ourselves, to use our voice. And this book was specifically written for women, though I think self-compassion, fierce self-compassion is needed by all humans. Um, so she does capture in the beginning why she specifically uh, had some of the excerpts that are, are more geared towards the experience of women in a patriarchal society. But in it, she says, in order to take back our power, we have to be fierce. And to me, that feels real good uh, in order to actually make sure that we just don't keep quieting down, giving ourselves just love without changing the cycle of what's bringing us so much pain. Right. So, so moving beyond the, just smile and be quiet, just, just smile and look pretty. You just get through this. You'll be okay. Like I think of the things that were said to me at growing up or, or even early on in medicine, just, just to get through this. It's okay. They didn't mean anything. Don't say anything. Don't, don't make a scene, all of those things. And what this book offers is you, you don't have to be powerless. That doesn't mean go destroy things. It means reach within and be clear and express that clarity, share that clarity. And there's some exercises in the book that I really enjoyed, probably in every chapter, but specifically in the first chapter of standing up and assuming some different postures, of standing up and saying no, of standing up and saying yes. So, so getting just clear on where the boundaries are so that, that we maintain our autonomy and we feed what's good and right about who we are and what we believe and what we care about rather than feeding our doubt or feeding our insecurity or falling into the belief that we really aren't good enough and we're not worthy of being here. Yep. And in the book, and I know we'll talk about it in further chapters, but you know, we, we have a lot we need to unlearn and the things we learned had a role and negative self-talk becomes a place to help keep you safe. And in later chapters, we'll talk about anger. So stay tuned for us for that conversation, of course. Grab your book because that has been life-changing. In women, we are socialized not to express all emotions. Like you said, we want to look a certain way because that's the stereotype and that's the role that we were given. But we need to be able to express emotions. Otherwise, we turn it inward. And there's a uh, an excerpt here. It's about backdraft. And so backdraft is when if you come and self-compassion is scary because you haven't been offering it to yourself, you came for an environment where you didn't have a good attachment style, maybe as a child, or you're in an environment that was not safe for you. Uh, and so you turned all of that inward. Um, backdraft is relating to if there was a fire and it's raging in a poorly ventilated room. And then if the oxygen uh, inside has been used up by the fire and doors are opened suddenly, then fresh, fresh oxygen comes in, just like if you were giving yourself 
self-compassion and it can ignite the fire in in the fire in this example would relate to the suffering that you've been keeping inside for so long and it can be dangerous and explosive and so to prevent that the firefighters put holes to kind of just keep it so that you let a little bit of air in at a time and that's what you can do with self-compassion you just bring up a little bit at a time that you have the coping skills to be able to manage and and not put yourself in a situation where you're overcome with all this internal suffering at the same time because then you might retreat and not lean into furthering your development of self-compassion for sure i know the environment i grew up in was not consistent and the book mentions if different types of environments that we all grew up in so sometimes I, I was okay, or sometimes I was good. And then sometimes the message would be that I was bad. I was wrong. I was an idiot. I'm stupid. And, or at least that's what I received from the environment. I'll say that whether or not that was the message sent. And so I, I internalized that and I believe that. And so, and I always felt like I had to pay if I did something wrong, I've got to pay for this. Like I've got to beat myself up. I, I've got to carry it. I've got to do better, but it's really hard to do better from a place that is just so like heavy and filled with disgust almost that it is a, it has been a work <laughs> to turn around and at least kind of look at, I need to set time limits. Like if I'm going to beat myself up, it can't be indefinite anymore. It can't be something that pops up 10 years later, 30 years later. It's got to be like, all right, for two weeks, like just to narrow that down because nobody's going to go in my brain and say it's expired. That is now expired. It's off limits. You can't touch that. You can't regurgitate that anymore. Yeah. The rumination too comes up in this book a lot. I ruminate a lot about a lot of things, especially if it came up early childhood, it's a learned behavior, a learned thought that we've had for a long time. I was often called a worthless piece of poop. And, and that's my default belief. And uh, I, I, no matter how much work I do during times of high stress, that's my default. And I really, at that point, have to be intentional about stopping delivering self-compassion. And there's the inner child work that I think is good for those moments. Uh, and just appreciating at the time that I used self-critical talk and running compulsively, I used to just always run on the treadmill uh, and realize, well, where did that behavior come from? Well, a lot of the things that were said to me after this, an individual I love dearly would come home from work. And if I was watching TV or anything relaxing of any sort, I was called lazy. And of course, now I offer people and something that was offered for me, be lazy. We know we're not. We're hardworking, achieving people. We need to rest sometimes and rest is not lazy. And then of course, the judgment that comes with lazy. So I was called a, um, for my eating disorder, I was called a lazy, not lazy. I was called a selfish, bad word. And, um, and I was like, wow, interestingly enough, my eating disorder was ignited by this constant need to please this a person that called me that and gain their attention and love. And, and so I knew that inside. And so when they called me that and I knew it was wrong, it actually allowed me to let go of their need of the need for the approval because I was like, I will not be seen here. 
And that was the start of me taking back ownership of my life. And it's like, you know what, this is a losing battle. And what do I need now in order to not die literally? And then now it's more, what do I need to thrive? One of the things that has been big for me, and I don't, I don't know if it exactly relates to backdraft, but I think about some environments that I've been in where, where people are just so warm and accepting and friendly and the self-talk will come up like they don't know you. Wait till they get to know you. Then we'll see if they're going to be this warm, right? So it's it's overcoming that and allowing other people to be kind, <laughs> to be generous, to speak nicely without feeling like I have to earn it or I have to prove something. Like it's taken like this, this sense of self-kindness, like it's okay. It's okay. You don't, you don't have to earn. You don't have to prove. You don't have to please. Like, it's okay. Just let them be kind. Yeah. This discussion came up. We have a mutual friend that you connected me with that lives in the same city I do. And we were talking about that in terms of if someone says something good about us, it's uncomfortable. And as you just mentioned, I'm like, well, if they truly knew me, I don't let people stay around me long enough. I go back into my cave so that they're not around me long enough to be annoyed. I talk about existential crises and these deep feelings because I don't like superficial conversations. They just are not where I like to live. And it's too much for some. And and then I'm like, I'm either too much or not enough. And, and what I realized at the end of the day was because my relationship with myself was unstable. And if I could form a relationship with myself, then I wouldn't be thinking so much about the outcome. And this isn't even just about our relationships with ourselves, but it is about the outcome of the grades, outcome of the job. We're always focused on the outcome and then we miss the process. So if we're focused on our external presence and what we look like to others, then we're completely ignoring, well, what do I look like to me? How do I want to show up? And so with coaching, we know we can't control others. So I said, well, how do I want to show up? How would I feel good in this situation? If it's an interpersonal conflict in a conversation that might be heated, well, what energy do I want to bring? And as you bring this positive, safe energy, I value positive, safe energy. And I don't want people to come in to my atmosphere and feel they can't speak up. They can't use their voice because they feel unsafe. And so what I realized when I was always on defense mode, while I was creating a very high energy frequency that people might not feel comfortable, especially when I was younger and didn't know how to manage my emotions and maybe even now to step into that space because they don't know when I'm going to explode and go off. Like I, I think about our time in Sedona, there, there was three of us, you, Lori, and me, and, and wanting to be close enough and wanting to give enough space as well so that, that it wasn't an overwhelming experience. And, and for both you and Lori, it was the first time that we had all traveled together. We're in a new environment. We're all coming from a different place in life and a different perspective and have different needs or different wants from Sedona. So thinking about that, just kind of maintaining this sense of it's going to be amazing. I don't have to be anyone other than who I am. I do have to allow myself to be enough. And that's the self-compassion piece. 
I have to allow myself to be enough because if I'm not, that's when the vibration starts going really fast. Yeah. And we, I have often sabotaged the experience through being stuck in my head and feeling like I don't belong and then looking for reasons or ways to validate my internal belief. I don't belong. Let me look for ways that that's true. Yeah. You're not alone, sister. (laughs) I have done that. Occasionally I will find myself doing that because it's an easy, it's an easy switch for me to flip on. Oh, I don't belong. It gives me permission to just check out. (laughs) But then I get in my head about just how ugly I feel with that situation. Not, not physically ugly, but just the, that kind of gross feeling of being dismissive about others, which essentially means I'm being defensive and I'm not going to let them in because I I don't want to feel the judgment that I am feeling that I'm also creating. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I tend to get the experience, of course, right before an encounter, as you've experienced with me traveling, I'm like, is it about traveling? What's at the core here? And at the core is what if they spend a lot more time with me and their positive belief of me changes right? And then they do get to know you and then they reject the you that they do know, right? Because we can live in this belief where it's like, oh, the people know me or the people don't like me, but they don't know a lot about me. But what if they get to know a lot about you and then they don't like you? Yeah. Yeah. Tracy and I talked about that on and talking about betrayal, that feeling of betrayal, that opening up and trusting and then uh, when it when it doesn't go in a way that forms a deeper relationship, ooh, it's a tough feeling. So, so many benefits of of self compassion, both kinds or all kinds. I'm sure there's other kinds besides the tender yeah. and fierce. Of just on in terms of quality of life and opening up to experiencing more of life rather than. For me, hiding at home behind a computer screen. Absolutely. I I think it's been the grounding force and the ingredient I was missing in my life in order to have a foundation where I could finally be and a foundation that I can push off of that's not rock bottom because I used to wait until I hit rock bottom to make change. And now I see what self-compassion offered me was this new set of glasses where I could see where I wasn't valuing myself and where others weren't valuing me. And when I figured out that I could no longer tolerate that, it was self-compassion that was the change because Without self-compassion, I would continue to believe that that's what I was worth, nothing, and to be treated poorly and to not be paid. Your life has changed dramatically since we met. Yes. It's, it seems that it is correlated with self-compassion and opening up. Yeah. So I will say for the people who are afraid, you know, I definitely leaned into a lot of Brene Brown. She talks about guilt and shame and to combat guilt and shame, we need to be vulnerable. To be vulnerable, we need safe spaces. 
So you and Don created this safe space in Nora of ACE, finding a community where I could be vulnerable and share my most insecure moments and have a group that resonates and accepts. It took a year to really continue to lean into that space and finally be like, you know what? They haven't yet kicked me out. I think maybe they really mean it, but they say I belong here. And I shared the start of my journey towards reclaiming my life was Kevin MD and writing everything I was most insecure about, most guilty about, had the most shame about. And I shared it publicly because I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And the vulnerability allowed me to realize that all my fears were not realized at all. They did not happen. I was afraid people would present me judgments, but instead I was given, hmm, me too, I resonate with this story and the community. And it's interesting because in our training, we spend so much time putting our heads down. We sacrifice so much of our personal lives in order to succeed and gain these achievements, thinking the achievements bring happiness. And I sacrifice my whole personal life because I have a hard time compartmentalizing professional life and personal life. But I thought I needed to go for the professional life because that's what our society carves out as being the way to happiness and success. Retrospectively, what I realized is I gave up everything that brought meaning and joy into my life, sense of meaning and joy and purpose, which were the relationships. And jumping off that merry-go-round and really leaning into that now has been a healing force. So you are certainly one of the top people who have shown me how to do that. I feel very blessed to, to be allowed into your space. And I feel very blessed that I think Dawn has really paved the way because I, I don't naturally live an, an open life. I live a very guarded, defensive posture. You can't hurt me. Go ahead and try kind of life, which has shifted over the past couple of years in, in a very positive way. Because what I realize is I I want to live a life filled with love, like pure love, no agenda love. I want to be a collector of humans to love. Like that's that's the sole purpose of our relationship is I get to love you. And my hope is that it brings you joy, that, that it's it's beneficial. And I want to be tender because it's it's not a quality that I see, but it's such a beautiful quality is tenderness. So I'm curious about where the book is going because I'm a little apprehensive about the fierce. I feel like I've lived fierce, but it was fierce in a way that was defensive and guarded. And like, I'm ready. You want to fight? I'm ready to fight. And so I'm curious about how to wrap that in as I have embraced more of the tenderness and I feel very protective of the tenderness now. Yeah. And and we'll definitely be talking about ways to express emotions in a constructive way and ways that if we're not mindful, it can come out as destructive. So definitely invite people to stay tuned. It's going to be a very meaningful, productive discussion that I help, hope helps people to gain the tools that they may not know are out there. And Part of the community is we're here to provide that safe space. Uh, I think that's an extremely important component um, that we often don't realize until we find it. 
And that's why people really leaned into ACE and now emerge. For sure. For sure. Because many of the things that are presented, we may not have the same exact experience, but we have that same feeling that results from it. And we could raise our hand and say, yeah, you're not alone. Yeah, I get it. And we have the ability to show others what they cannot see. Because when we're so steeped in shame and unworthiness and not enoughness, there's so much we can't see. All, all we see is our critic. And our, our critic is not telling us the truth ever. What I think would be helpful is to talk about the three elements of self-compassion. Because I was like, oh, really? There's three? <laughs> So the first is mindfulness, turning towards discomfort and acknowledging it. Like it's that simple, not running away from it, not boxing it up and putting it in the back of the closet, but actually turning towards it and seeing it, acknowledging its presence. So that's mindfulness. The second part is common humanity. And I really think that this is either beat out of us or somehow instilled that this doesn't apply to us in medicine. So common humanity says that pain and imperfection are part of the human experience. And in medicine, we imperfection is not allowed. Like many of us go immediately to, if I make a mistake, someone's going to die. So we, we don't acknowledge that we're human. We expect ourselves to be greater than, and then we have these great falls when there's an unanticipated outcome, regardless if we're responsible or not. And then the third is kindness. And it's simplified to saying being genuinely good to ourselves. So I wore the sweatshirt, be kind today. <laughs> I love it. Those are so comfortable too, from Green Cloud. As a reminder, and it's part of self-compassion, it is not intuitive especially for high achievers to be kind to ourselves and to acknowledge that we are imperfect and we are going to suffer and we will make mistakes and we are not the only one. And we can smile and other people will think that our lives are perfect too, just as we're thinking about their lives, but we're really not the only one and that we no longer have to hide from what we feel. We just don't, we can acknowledge it. It, it doesn't take that much time. It takes more time to run away or to numb out from it or to develop coping patterns that are ultimately destructive. What else do you want to say about this intro to fierce self-compassion? Yeah, I'm really curious to hear where people are at. You know, here all spectrums, whether whatever is coming up for them. Because I think when we share our truth, it really helps us to connect with people at deeper levels. And I hope that they can trust in us that we are a safe space. And as you create self-compassion within yourself, you'll be your own safe space as well. And that's the beauty is to be home no matter where you're at, that you can always be home with yourself. Dr. Kristen Neff, she shares early on in her life, some of the things that happened. And I got the sense that she was seeking self-compassion and it was not intuitive or even available to her. And, and it's something that she has been able to really give a voice, give language, give science around. And I'm so thankful for that. So she too has led an imperfect life. That's the common humanity piece. And she's using her pain and researching it and studying it for our gain. 
Yeah. And I think that piece of mindfulness without self-compassion, what happens if you're being mindful, just like when you're trying to go bed at night and you're trying to be present with yourself, if you're present without self-compassion, you're present with those self-negative self-talk. And, and that's where people can experience a lot of pain while being mindful. So I think mindfulness needs self-compassion in order for it to have the benefits that we often know it for. And what I know for sure is that the negative self-talk is not me. That is not me. That does not define me. It's not who I am. It is not accurate or true. And I know that is the same for anyone listening. Your negative self-talk does not define you. That is never how anyone else, anyone who can see you will define you as well. Yeah, Any other in thoughts? The book, yeah. In that comment, she talks about if you capture what you're saying to yourself, and I know this is it gets a little bit cliche, but if we really consider it, would you say that to your best friend? She specifies best friend because the people that are too close to us that we don't think will leave, we tend to be a little bit more mean to. <laughs> and I can say that's been one of my biggest regrets was how I showed up and maybe caused pain to the people who were so kind in my life. But for the best friends that you're mindful of how you communicate because that you know that they could leave at any time, how would you support them in the moments that you are experiencing in your own life? And how can you show up as your own best friend? And we have Dr. Olivia Ung, I believe, has a TED talk about her experience on this topic. Um, so I can provide you that link to her talk if people want to explore what she has to say. Yeah. And bringing back tenderness to, is it something that you would say to somebody who you are tender towards? Like, is it somebody, something you would say to your dog? Cause most of us are very tender towards our dogs or our animals in general. Is that something we would say? Is it something that we would assume about them? Is it, is, would we punish them the way that we do to ourselves? So remembering the the mindfulness, the common humanity, and then the kindness. And as Jillian said earlier, that this is something that may not feel comfortable. It may not feel good. It may not feel right. You may feel like you're letting yourself off the hook or that you're weak and only weak people do this. Um, none of that is true. Like this isn't about weakness. This is actually about building strength. And it's it's starting to see yourself with a more accurate picture rather than that negative definition that is inaccurate. Yep. Well said. My dear friend, thank you for spending this day, this time. So we are going to do for the next adventure in this book, we're going to do chapters two, three, and four. We're going to lump them together chapters two, three, and four. We do hope you join us. We do hope that you communicate with us. We'd love to know your takeaways and how we can serve you because that's what this is really about is serving you to help you see what you may not be able to see. Thank you, Dina, for having me. And thank you everyone for tuning in. We're so glad that you're here. <laughs>